2: 855 kilohertz on your AM dial. I'd like to acknowledge the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, traditional owners of the land from which 3CR transmits people-powered radio. Hi, I'm Bill, and each week on the Living Free Show, we showcase one of the 12-step programs that assist recovery from drugs, alcohol, gambling, and food addictions. Our guests share their recovery story and highlight that shared experience saves lives. Uh, I'd like to welcome Julianne and Julie to the show. Hi.
1: Hi.
2: Uh, they're members of Allen & Family Groups and they'll be sharing their journey of recovery from the family disease of alcoholism and tell us how Alan has helped them cope with the effects of someone else's drinking. So I might start with you, um, Gillian. So we usually talk about growing up and family and things that influenced our early life. So what was your family life like?
3: My dad was an alcoholic. I I, I didn't know that then, but my dad was an alcoholic. Um, And he didn't drink at home, so... For me, it was just, I just felt often a bit lost, a bit confused. My mum was so focused on my dad, it seemed, that she seemed to be angry all the time. And I've just felt um, that we had to be quiet. We were often sent outside or told to be quiet or find something to do, disappear for the day. And, you know, today I, I, I know what, where that comes from. But at the time, it was just um, keep busy and I was very creative. And, yeah, just kept out of the way and kept quiet, although that wasn't an easy thing for me to do because I'm, I, I was a pretty show-offy kind of um, boisterous kind of kid. So, yeah.
2: So did you have any siblings?
3: Yeah, so um, I have uh, a brother and two younger sisters and um, my brother became an, also became an alcoholic.
2: What about friendships in school? Were you a, were you a happy kid?
3: I think I was a scared kid. When I think about it now, I think I was, um, I didn't really fit in. I always felt like um, I wasn't, I was on the edge. I kind of didn't have a lot of friends. And the friends that I had, I never felt secure with them. Yeah, I spent a lot of my lunchtime sitting on my own and um, just feeling just not, I just didn't fit in. That went that went right through my high school as well.
2: Yeah. So what about with your
3: siblings? Do you mean the relationship with them or? Yeah. We were pretty close, though. So my my brother was was only just twelve months older than me, so we were quite tight. And um, and then my other sister came along, and she was a couple of years younger than me. So we I think we stuck together. At the, the the younger one came along a few years after that, so she kind of was a little bit. She was special because she was uh, I don't know she wasn't the same as us it felt like anyway. And so uh, the three of us um, spent a lot of time. Being on our own, you know, we were often sent to church on our own, sent up the street on our own, did the shopping, you know, we did the shopping on our own. So I felt like like we were the family, or we were the team, and and the parents were the others. You know, it wasn't wasn't very cohesive. We even ate dinner on our own. So mum would set the table and plonk us down for dinner, and we weren't allowed to talk at the table. And so it was a, it was a pretty when I think about that now, it was a pretty um, barren kind of existence, really.
2: Hmm. So did things change when, when you went to high school?
3: So we moved a few times um, and, then, and then I started, when I started high school, we, we were in a new area, so I didn't know anyone in the area. I still felt separate or scared and didn't really fit in, although I did make a couple of um, friends, superficial kind of friends, which is to sit in the sun on Sunday and do crazy, stupid things, teenage girl things. But, you know, um, my parents took us out or we, took, we were moved out of... So I was brought up in New Zealand, sorry. Um, and I was getting caught up with um, the wrong crowd, my mum told me, and I was discovering boys. And so it, it looked as if it was going to be a bit of a problem. Um, and then my dad got the offer to move to Australia. So we as a family all moved to Australia. And uh, so I finished my education here um, to a very low level. Yeah, so when I got here, I was kind of the new kid at the high school. So I was popular for the first couple of weeks because I had such an odd accent. And I, and I made a couple of girlfriends here here as well. And then that was only two years and then I was out of there.
2: Yeah, okay. So, Julie, what about you? Um, did you have any alcoholism in your family?
0: Uh, so, yes, my grandfather was an alcoholic. He died when I was, was about four or five, but it was... Yeah, it was very clear that he was an alcoholic. He was a nasty man. He'd just sit in the dark uh, and bark orders, and drink and smoke. And as children, I remember, as children, we weren't allowed to even say boo. We were my brother and I were really good kids, really quiet. And but if we, you know, we I remember we had this little because obviously there was no money in that family. So the, the, the toys that my grandma had was there was a game of tiddlywinks and the other thing was a suitcase full of jelly boxes, boxes of jelly crystals. And we would stack these jelly crystals and make, you know, block towers and stuff. And, you know, as kids, you know, and we're talking five and three, sort of, you know, that's the age, you know, you know, you build the tower, it crashes over you go, oh, wow. You know, and if, even if we did that, we were screamed at. know so we were always on eggshells my grandma used to always take out you know pretty much she would pretty much get us out of the house as much as she could if we went to visit them but um he was a very dark sordid scary man and um you know when he died there was a lot of uh pressure taken off the family um unfortunately my grandma turned very ill soon after she had a series of strokes and you know, I look back and I think it's not surprising because the stress that she must have lived under would have been absolutely horrendous. And to take that off instantly, you know, your body has to have some sort of adjustment. And anyway, so she unfortunately didn't have a, have a great life preceding his death, which is sad. But what I didn't realise growing up was that my dad was the son of an alcoholic. <laughs> I had no idea that I was living with, was still within the disease of alcoholism, um, yeah, he was a uh, very absent father. He, he he had a lot of resentments and bitterness. He wasn't an angry person, but he was, if that makes sense. He always had, he was very generous um, to other people to the point that he would give, you know, the clothes off our back to others. He was very well known in the community we grew up in. He was, you know, the chairman of every board and, uh, you know, the head of every PTA meeting and You know, he worked away a lot. He was a farmer by day and an insurance salesman by night. So he was a very busy man, but, you know, he was everybody's buddy. But, yeah, not a a great dad, really. It was was all about work. Growing up was about work. It wasn't, there was no fun. And looking back, you know, I I can look back and say, well, that's what he was brought up with. You know, he he had to pretty much start looking after the farm that he grew up on from a very young age. And he's... He always held that bitterness towards his sister, um, that she got to go off and go to university, and he, he wanted to be a doctor, but he couldn't be the guy because he had to stay on a grafted family farm, you know, granddad and grandma and nana. So, so he just lived in constant bitterness, but always wanting to be what he kind of couldn't be once he left home. Very complex man.
2: So what was your mum like?
0: Quiet. Uh, she was a good Catholic lady. You know, I remember growing up. A few times, I said to Mum, "Why, why do you, why are you still married to Dad?" And she was like, "You know, I'm married for life. You know, Catholic Church says once you're married, you don't get divorced, and this is my lot, sort of thing." She was a beautiful lady. I, I think I'm, I'm, a, I'm a fifty-fifty of my mum and my dad. I have the extrovert uh, uh, nature of my dad, but I have all the compassion and kindness and gentleness of my mum too. Yeah, my mum. She put up with way too much, unfortunately, which wasn't which wasn't in itself a good role model for me.
2: So what about school and friendships? What was what was that like?
0: So I grew up in New Zealand too, just like Gillian. <laughs> a very small country town. Uh, there was less than 40 children at my school. So and then we went, had to go into high school, catch a bus run out of high school. Um, but the primary school was less than 40 kids and um, so we only had two teachers. Uh, everybody knew everybody, as you can imagine. It was a very small community. But I was, it was very lonely for me too. I, there was four girls and four boys in my year group. I was always picked on by the other girls, for so being the brainy one and the chubby one. I was always a bit chubby as a kid and because I had asthma really bad and couldn't exercise. I really struggled with friendships growing up. I was really only friends with sort of one or two older girls who were, Kind of like family friends so yeah I, I, you know, I found I found it hard to make to have relationships yeah
2: yeah what about with your brother?
0: Uh, we were we were just like Gillian was expressing we were actually quite tight We were I think you know when you go through something like what we went through together that you kind of you have each other's back.
2: Obviously things changed when you went to high school but how much?
0: I don't know. I still never felt comfortable on my own skin, really. And I look back now, you know. Once I left home, I was I kind of was forced to leave home in a way. My dad left my mum in my last last year of schooling, and my mum pretty much forced me to go to uni because I was bright. She says, you know, you've got to carry on and do all the things. Just because dad's left doesn't mean that, you know. So anyway, I was forced to go to uni, and I had a bit of a breakdown, and and that and that first year of uni and because life had turned upside down and I didn't have my normal things around me and and then I got sick I have a glandular fever I really didn't really enjoy life to be honest (laughs) I really didn't enjoy life
2: so did your mum support you when you got sick
0: yeah my mum did my mum very supportive person yeah yep she did but my dad didn't he was already off having affairs with other women and being an alcoholic in a way
2: so, Gillian, do you want to tell us what happened when you left school? You said you were at school for a few years, in high school. So what happened when you left?
3: Yeah, so when I left, I went to a business college and my dad said, the best paid women in our society are secretaries. So you need to become a secretary. And so my stenography skills, which is like typing and shorthand, were developed in the in the business school. So I did that for 12 months, and it was all about, I don't know, when I think about it now, I was sent off to beauty school or modelling school or something, and, I, and my mum helped me get a job at, the, at an insurance company. So my first job was at an insurance company doing shorthand typing stuff. Sounds so old now, doesn't it, when you say it, but that's what it was. <laughs> and, in fact, that's where I saw for the first time this CAD, office CAD, and I, as soon as I saw him, I just flipped and that, that, was, that was it. And it turned out, yeah, it turned out that he was an alcoholic.
2: So had you been in any other relationships?
3: Not really. You know, when I think before we left New Zealand, I, my brother had a couple of mates and, you know, they were going through their puberty and I was going through mine. So we did all puberty discoveries. But no, I never actually had a relationship before I met my husband. Yeah, my husband to be. So did you drink? Yep. No, so I had—I ne- never drank. And so when I, so I met, so what happened with that? So he was, in, I was in an office environment, open office environment, and he used to come in and all the girls would swoon when he came in. And, and I knew, I thought to myself, oh, you know, he, he's going out with her, she's going out with him, they're all good looking, they're all this, they're all that, and I'm just a. 16-year-old nothing and he's never going to look at me so just keep typing woman and then I was allocated to be um his secretary I guess and so I just used to take all his secretarial work and then he started flirting and all that stuff with me and um and invited me out for a drink well I didn't drink yeah I still wasn't didn't have hadn't realized that alcoholism was a big part of my growing up and I didn't realize he was an alcoholic and so I was very um, taken back and very flattered, got all dressed up in the most inappropriate clothes when I think about it now. But anyway, I was only 16. I was, very, I was a fashion chick and uh, and went off in this date with him to the drive-in, barely wearing any clothes, and then, um, and then to the pub afterwards for a drink. I didn't know what to order, so I just ordered a lemonade. And he said, no, no, I'll get you something. And so he ordered something for me. I think it was... Gin and something, and um, it was awful. I sat there, I took all night to drink it, whereas he sort of drank, you know, <laughs> however much he drank. But so, yeah, so that was my first introduction to alcohol.
2: Uh, well, so we might take a short break there. This week, we're featuring the music of Emma Donovan and the Putbacks. Uh, our first song is Dawn from January 2019, courtesy of Australian Music Radio Airplay Project.
4: I can hear the storm And I can feel the
2: Was Dawn by Emma Donovan and the Putbacks. Hey, all you mob, it's Dr. Mark Winnetong here. Coronavirus has certainly changed the way we live, work and connect. These changes can be hard for some of us and can make us feel no good in our head or spirit, like sad or worried all the time. Some of us might already be dealing with other things like sickness, trauma, and this can make it really hard for us to feel good about anything at the moment. If you're feeling like this, remember it's okay to ask for help. Have a yarn to someone you trust, like your family or an Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander health worker. You can also call Beyond Blue, Lifeline, or the Kids Helpline to talk to someone, or look at some helpful information at headtohealth.gov.au
4: on the internet.
0: A 3CR supporter. Herds and Curds with Carmen and Leanne, bringing you conversations with farmhouse cheesemakers and dairy producers. The first Sunday of the month at 7am on your
3: favourite station, 3CR. 3CR Digital and 3cr.org.au
2: Uh, This is the Living Free Show on 3CR, 855 kilohertz on your AM dial and 3CR on digital radio. If you're interested in listening to one of our many podcasts, then either head to your preferred podcast platform, iTunes, Spotify, or just Google 3CR Living Free. On our show's webpage, you'll also find details about Living Free Show and how to contact us. Today, I'm talking with Gillian and Jules, and we're talking about recovery from the family disease of alcoholism with the help of Al-Anon family groups. So over to you then, Julie. You had a bit of problems first year at uni. Did you continue with your at uni?
0: Yes, I finished um, back then. In those days it was only three years. And similar to Julie and I was told by my mum what I should do. I should become an accountant because I was good at maths. And so I did accounting. It was actually my worst my worst subject at uni. <laughs> but um, I did human resource management. So I was really interested, even, I guess, back then about how people were wired and so I didn't didn't like the idea of psychology but just you know how how humans interacted I guess and um, so that's what got me through uni really that that sort of looking at that side of things but um, I was uh, recruited by back then it was one of the top six I think there's a top four now chartered accounting firms around the world so I got recruited before i'd even finished my third year and i still for this to this day have no idea it was only by the grace of god i think that i was recruited because back then i was kind of still uncomfortable my own skin didn't really feel like i could sell myself but obviously this lady that recruited me saw something in me i think she saw that i was a hard worker and you know I remember being a little bit like my dad at school, and being a, you know, the chairman of a committee, and we redesigned the, this and we redesigned that, and um, so she could, she said, she saw I had a bit of innovation and, and a bit of go-getter in me, even though I didn't see it in myself. So that was then three years of to become a chartered accountant. I had to do three years' work with them. and before the end of my third year. I got a comment to San Francisco so I ended up getting to travel and live in America which was really the making and breaking of me. Um, <laughs> it was the breaking of my old. So while I was at uni and, um, and the school holidays I'd go back and work for my dad on his second farm that he'd bought and trying to figure out life with dad who had left my mum and, you know, all these different partners. And it, it, was, it was just so confusing. I ended up having my first boyfriend, which was one of my parents' family friends. So he was 22 years older than me. And he was an alcoholic. I didn't know that at the time either. It wasn't until I actually left, so we were together five years, I think, and it was when I left to go to America that he realized that he was an alcoholic and he started actually going to AA. Um, I never got to see him after that though. I, I think I'll get i bump into him one day or night. The world's too small a place but um, it's interesting that yeah I put up with such unacceptable behavior from him you know looking back as well you know from my first boyfriend but Obviously, I was looking for love from my dad who couldn't give it to me, like clearly marrying someone, uh, being with someone that much older.
2: So how did your life sort of change once you started working? Were you able to get into relationships at work?
0: Yeah, it actually, it was actually really, I think that's why I said it was the making and breaking of me because it. Um, growing up in that small community and um, everybody knew everybody and I kind of have always wanted to get away from that. And so... You know, being employed by this big international firm, no one knew me. No one knew my past. So I was this person, this individual identity, and it was almost like I had been given this new opportunity to create a whole new life based on who I was. So it was a starting of a discovery for me of who I was. I wasn't Keith's daughter and I wasn't Michael's sister and I wasn't, you know, all those the labels that are attached to growing up. Um, so, yeah, I, I had to start, uh, and, and it was I guess that's when I started looking at the relationship I was in with this alcoholic and seeing it from an outside perspective and going, is this who I want to be? Do I want to be with this guy? And, you know, <laughs> no, I don't. And, and, and it was in that time that I actually discovered that I was an extrovert because growing up I was an introvert because I was very much, I would hide behind my mum sort of because uh, my dad wasn't really safe sexually very very safe sexually and so I used to av- avoid being with him a lot as, you know not that he was ever around much but I, I would pretty much just stick to my mum and um, so I wanted to be like my mum I guess because my mum was a safe one so in a way I would wanted to be like mum so I had become an introvert whereas naturally I'm actually naturally wired as an extrovert so I you know, even just the small discoveries of learning that, it was it was huge. So my whole, you know, looking at it, life changed completely. And I never thought I'd. I'd always thought I'd be, you know, one of these just grow up, get married, have kids, sort of never, not never leave New Zealand. I'd already travelled to Australia a few times, but never thought I'd travel the world and live around the world, and never had kind of thought of that sort of stuff. But and I. I I was, I was given the opportunity and it became me. Yeah, it was great.
2: So how did you come in contact with the alcoholic?
0: In Tasmania, here. Yeah. So I travelled the world five years and then I had this big plan that I was going to um, live in Sydney uh, for a few years before going back to New Zealand because I thought New Zealand would be a bit too small for me after living in San Francisco and London and Dublin and all these big, you know, cities. So I had this big plan, I'll live there for three years and then move back to New Zealand. Um, in that three years, I actually met Jesus. <laughs> so I, I started, again, it was a new awakening of a part of me that I hadn't really tapped into and discovering more about myself. And um, So I did a lot of healing and um, I ended up leaving my chartered accountancy and went into ministry and became an assistant pastor at a church in um, Sydney ended up moving down here for to Tasmania for a ministry role yeah and I met I actually met my husband on a tennis court because I loved playing tennis. Oh world.
2: Well. <laughs> Sounds really interesting so back to you then Jillian. you'd been out with your boyfriend so how, how did the relationship develop from there?
3: We just sort of went out quite a few times uh yeah, so I'd have my one drink and he'd have seven or eight or nine or whatever. And then after the pub we'd go parking and he'd fall asleep and I'd sit there because I didn't think that I could say anything and he'd sleep for two hours and I'd just sit in the car in the cold or whatever. And when I think about this now, I'm a little embarrassed talking about it, but that's just how it was. And I put up with that. You know, I put up with that. And uh my mum tried to steer me away. She encouraged me to keep saving and to have an eye on traveling. and so I was kind of doing that in the background, but at no time did I ever consider that I could leave this this guy because I was or I thought I was in love with him and and I was scared I think I didn't think that I was worth anybody else that you know someone had found me and someone said they love me and so I'll just stick with that and I'll put up with all of the crap that went on with it, you know. so yeah, so I just continued to do that. We eventually moved in together. Yeah, and, and look, he was he was actually quite um, responsible at that particular time. He, a, he he worked full-time, had a good job. You know, we both did. We both worked and we were both quite financial. I don't know what happened. We, then we moved into another house. We got engaged and then we got married. Much to my mum's, yeah, my mum tried to talk me out of it. You know, I can't even remember that, but she did. I know that she did, but I can't actually remember how she did it. And on the other hand, she also supported me. So she was kind of a although she never did Alanon, she was kind of a, an al-Anon mum in a way is that she took her hands off and let me make my own decisions and supported me. But yeah. But, yeah, look, she was married to my Olive too. And my dad was my dad's disease was progressing right through that time. And we had lots of embarrassing moments when we'd have family dinners and you know dad would wipe himself out. And between the two of them, between my husband and my dad you know, Christmas Day and those kind of occasions were horrific because there was always that incredible tension that not only goes with Christmas, but, you know, to have on top of that alcoholics, a couple of alcoholics and my brother starting off as well. So, yeah, that was that was the, the relationship. And then I quickly had kids and thought that would change things. And then another one, I thought that would change things. Then another one, I thought that would change things. It was a progressive, very progressive relationship. Um, disease in so many ways yeah.
2: When did you think that you'd had enough of all that? When did you sort of think there's got to be something better?
3: There had been quite a few incidences of not physical domestic violence towards me but punching of walls and really unacceptable behaviour that I can say now and I would end up walking out driving it taking the kids out blah 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 and Friends would come around and say, oh, you know, just leave them, just do this, just do that, and, and I couldn't. I didn't know how to do that. And so it wasn't probably until about maybe two or three years of putting up with that really, really horrible stuff that we we had moved and we lost our son to, in a car accident and he was only four and it really broke us. And he turned to more to alcohol. He picked up um, heavier Uh, substance he went to basically to spirits where he was a beer drinker and I turned to writing I basically just wrote how I was feeling I had a neighbor who was in some evangelical kind of church and she would try and get me to talk about things and it was pretty obvious that this was just I wasn't I didn't love this man he it wasn't good. It just really wasn't good. And I, and I just visualised what the future was going to be. I thought to myself, you know, do I really want to live the next 50, 60, whatever years like this? And do I want my kids to go through what I went through? Or And so it was a prayer because I wasn't an alum. It was, a, it was like an instinctive feeling. And even that inability to grieve together, like to support each other through that grieving process was, you know, just it, it was just such an unhealthy time. And so I asked, yeah, I just made a decision one day and, and asked and said that I wanted to have a, to separate and uh, I just needed time to sort myself out. But I knew even when the words came out of my mouth that it was um, that, that was the end of it. And then I just had to negotiate my way around, you know, avoiding violence and avoiding all sorts of any drama that might happen as a result of that. So, yeah, that's, what, that's how that was.
2: Okay, thank you. Jules, so meeting your alcoholic... So did you realise he was an alcoholic when you met him?
0: Yes, he, pr- he quickly told me his story because obviously I was a new pastor down here and he and so I shared my, you know, why I'd come to Tassie and so I think he thought I was a bit of a confession box. Yeah, he shared his story. So no, he was very honest that he was an alcoholic but a recovered alcoholic. Whilst he, he was actually going through... He was divorcing his wife at the time, but he was also breaking up with the woman he would ended up with after he'd got, you know, because obviously divorce back then, you had to be separated two years. So he'd been away from his wife for two years and he was separating from this next partner as well. So, yeah, I was pretty much at the time just a person for him to lean on, that he could trust, that it, that it could listen to him. Yeah.
2: So what was the attraction?
0: Oh, I wasn't attracted to him at all in the beginning. <laughs> I, in fact, I, I got quite angry with God, I said, you know, because I'd been, you know, I'd, I'd cleaned up my ways, um, you know. For, I'd been I'd been clean myself for sort of kind of seven years of trying to do the right thing in my life and, and, and preparation for finding the right person, you know. I, I didn't want to be just having, you know, ending up with anybody. And so I was actually a bit angry with God. When I first came to Tassie, there was kind of these three weird individuals and he was one of them. <laughs> and I said I don't want any of those guys that's all Tassie's got to offer me so no I I wasn't attracted to him at all at the beginning (laughs) but what happened well I think God challenged me in that me you know pointing my finger at him I think God pointed his finger back at me and said you know I felt safe with with my husband at the time I um because I, I knew that my biggest my biggest worry was the area of sexual sin. Like, because my dad, you know, had hurt me, I was very much, I wanted to feel safe with a man sexually. And there was no indication that I wouldn't be with this guy. And, I, you know, and I'd spoken and I'd shared my story about that. And, and he had three sons. You know, being a health, you know, because being recovered at the time, he was a very, very, very good dad. And... So I think, I think that's what attracted me to him, that I could see he was a good, a good dad and that goes a long way in society these days, doesn't it?
2: Yeah. So how long did it take before things changed?
0: It was a year into our marriage. So I think, I think we got married 18 months uh, sort of until after we'd been together and it was a year after we got married that he started drinking again, pretty much exactly a year.
2: So why did he start? Was there a trigger?
0: Yes. He blamed Christianity. (laughs) We were going to this church, so he started going to church with me, and then we moved to a different church. And he felt judged by Christians that he wasn't seen to be a good enough Christian uh, because there there was a couple of people in my life that had claimed to be alcoholics and had been healed from their disease through God. And yes, God is all-powerful and can heal people. However, God's healing looks different in everybody and at any stage, you know. And I made that quite clear to my husband. I said, God has healed you. He's healed you because he's stopped you drinking. But he took it that step further because he wanted to actually drink again. He wanted to be able to have everything, you know, the perfect, you know, marriage and great family and, you know, things were working great for him. So he wanted to have the icing on the cake and be able to drink again. But the, the bottom line was, the person that started him drinking back when he was 14, he hadn't seen him for 10 years and he was coming into town and he wanted to have a drink with him because that was who he started drinking again with. Yeah.
2: Okay, thanks. Well listen, we might take another break there. Uh another Emma Donovan and the Putbacks song. Uh this one called Don't Give Up on Me from October 2020, Courtesy of Australian Music Radio Airplay Project. Don't Give Up On Me uh, by Emma Donovan and The Putbacks. Hi, my name's Travis from Larakea Country, and I'm here to talk about the Reading, Writing Hotline. It's a service that helps adults who can't read and write as well as they'd like to. The number is one 300 655 6 Give them a call if you know somebody who needs help with reading and writing. It's never too late to learn, and it's easier than you think. one 300 655 6 one 300 6 the reading, writing hotline.
0: A 3CR supporter. Six
3: years I've been in desert. Beyond the Bars is 3CR's annual prison project, giving voice to our Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander inmates right across Victoria. It's
1: good to be here because uh, Aboriginal radio and... Um, you don't really get to do this much it brings us all together time you'll get your time to take that first step out that front door to freedom beyond these walls make sure and i just
4: want to say thank you yours. to all of you for What's giving us the, the
3: opportunity to morning. speak on the air
1: the reason the bigger the calling make your commitment and watch things
3: uncalled. and you can listen to audio from this year's broadcasts and previous years as well online at any time Just go to 3cr.org.au forward slash beyond the bars. But also while I'm here, I'd like to say thank you for all for coming, um, helping, giving us a chance to do this. It's really good, you know, it's been going for a while now. Hopefully it goes, it keeps going. You know, like it's it's good that we can do this and um, get our voice out there. As prisoners. Well, we, we
1: can't blame everything on the external. So let's stop looking for it in the hands of the persecutor, because real power comes from here and it comes from family.
0: If you would like us to post you a free CD, contact the station
3: on O three nine four one nine eight three
1: double seven.
2: Uh, this is the Living Free Show on 3CR on digital radio and live streaming on 3cr.org.au forward slash streaming. Today I'm talking with Julie and Julian, and they're talking about recovery from the family disease of alcoholism with the help of Alan on family groups. So Julian, back to you. We left you talking about separating from your husband. Was that a, a good process for you?
3: Yes, it was, it was a great process. It felt really right. And and as I said, I had to do it very carefully because he was kind of very volatile and also very possessive. And I, and I didn't want to hurt him. I mean, you know, he was a father of my kids, and we've already been through a lot in our life. I didn't so I didn't want to be I didn't want to hurt him. So I wanted to do it really gently. So that's how I did it. I don't know if it was the right way or not. So um, yes, yeah, so I moved um, into an apartment with my two girls, and I got as much work as I could to try and support us and sort of made a decision that I was just going to be this woman, warrior woman with two kids and I was just going to do it on my own. That was my thinking. And and we we did go through the court system, but we kind of did a lot of it ourselves so that he could have custody whenever he wanted or needed to have custody. Um, So it was quite an amicable thing ultimately. I think he always had the hope that we would get back together, but that wasn't going to be the case. Yeah, so I did a geographical and moved, met someone else a couple of years or maybe actually the next year and moved into a new relationship and moved out of the area and um, and went on boldly for the next, I don't know, how many years, maybe eight years before I realised that uh, I needed some help. And, um, yeah, so that's that's how it went for me.
2: So why did you think you needed help?
3: I didn't know what sort of help I needed. I just. I just was constantly looking to see what what is it there's something I felt like there was something missing or something wrong. I'd go to like clairvoyants and counselors and do all sorts of weird therapies and I armed an art all over the place and I you know I did all sorts of classes and I always felt good at the end of that particular class and maybe for a couple of days later or after seeing a, a clairvoyant and she told me my future and i felt you know so I always felt good. For a little while but then after that it was back to normal again and I was searching for the next fix you know it's almost like I was an addict myself because I was this I was just seeking something and and I was angry I just felt angry all the time and irritable and I was taking it out on my kids and I, and you know one part of me was getting really angry with myself for doing that and on the other hand I just couldn't help it and so I, I didn't know how to get rid of this frustration and anger and and I'd taken it up on my my new partner on my ultimately to become my husband and when he because he was such a you know he has such a good life and he was busy and and so I would get really resentful at how you know how dare you have a good life that I'm you know. so I, I was really mental and, and I was just becoming really insane so I didn't I just couldn't find who could help me I even went to a psychologist and just found it incredibly boring because they just didn't I wanted someone to tell me what was wrong with me and fix me right there and then and then i would be fine. But I just never found that, and uh, you know, until I until I finally got to Eleanor.
2: So, how did you
3: find Eleanor? Yeah, so my kids were seeing my their dad quite regularly, and we often get calls in the middle of the night um, from them to say, "Come and pick us up because um, you know dad's pissed and he's angry, you know he's doing all sorts of things, whatever." And can you come and help us? And I'd be in the street, and one particular time, a person that I had befriended who used to talk about going to meetings all the time and I just thought that she was really important but I didn't know it was Alanon meeting and she probably t- said the word al but my denial was incredibly thick and I didn't hear al or I didn't hear anything like that. I just heard meeting, she must be important. Anyway, she happened to come to our house um, this particular morning after we'd rescued one of our daughters from um, from the alcoholic home and she suggested that, that she might like to go to Alateen. And because I think she'd left a whole lot of stuff on my counter several times and I just passed it on to someone who I thought had a bigger problem than I had. (laughs) And so our younger daughter started at Alatine. And that's pretty much how I got to go to Alan because my daughter very gently told me that the reason she goes to Alatine is because her dad's an alcoholic. And did I realise, mum, that you had been in a relationship with him? For this many years, and that I had been affected too, and maybe Al-Anon might help me. Ta-da! So that's how I found Al-Anon and so I went to my first Alanon meeting.
1: Okay, thanks.
2: So, what about you, Julie? If your husband starts to drink again, so was that a shock to you, seeing that transformation?
0: The first year was okay. He actually it was okay the first year. It was. And I thought, oh, maybe this is actually going to work. And then the slippery slope happened, and the lying started happening, and all the old pattern of his behaviours that he'd spoken of from when he had started been drinking earlier, like um, just disappearing, you know, for months on end, going and moving to Melbourne or Hobart or wherever, and you know that sort of stuff. And lying, you know, where have you been? all that sort of stuff and then of course when i started questioning it then you know it's two or three years into it he he yeah he became violent he was a violent drunk punched holes in the walls um, emotionally abusive um because it was always my fault and blah uh, blah and you know that sort of stuff so yeah it was it was really hard
2: given you're in a sort of a helping profession how did you cope with that seeking help yourself
0: well first of all i went to the church you know i Asked for help from them to just having someone to talk about. Because, you know, I know that pastors are confidential. So I just, you know, at the beginning I needed someone to talk to really. So I tried them. They suggested I see a psychiatrist. Um, so I went and saw a psychiatrist. Like Gillian said, he whilst he was meant to be one of the better ones down here, who didn't fit with me, shall we say. So I think I only went to about three or four sessions and I just knew that it it wasn't what I needed like yes yeah though I'd learned one or two things but it didn't work he didn't have a clue about alcoholism to be honest really and then we had a a daughter so um, our daughter's got special needs so we had I had a really very very horrible year so we knew six months into the sorry halfway through the pregnancy that she was going to have problems so, you know, I was at the hospital every two weeks getting MRIs and scans and stuff and, you know, having um, four and a half months of the unknown. and then she was in hospital for three months when she was first born. So it was a very, very stressful time for both of us. We'd already separated once prior to having her, so things had already got to the point, you know, of uh, getting a bit hard. My father was dying in New Zealand of cancer, so I had that going on. Um, I had changed jobs because there'd been a few issues at the church that I had been working at when I first came to Tassie. So there was a lot of stress going on in my life. We'd got married. I was carrying a huge amount of stuff. So I tried everything and I remember after six months, my, my daughter was six months old and my dad died and we were in New Zealand and I ended up coming back to Tassie and I was only home two or three days and I remember crying on the knocking myself on the ensuite and calling my mum and said can I come back to New Zealand because my dad my husband was fairly supportive over my dad um dying actually except for the day of the funeral he just couldn't hold it together any longer so he became an ass on the day of my dad's funeral and didn't really stop again so yeah I ended up back in New Zealand with my mum and while I was there I thought to myself the only thing I haven't tried is Elanon because my husband had told me about Elanon and so had a had a woman in my first church in Tassie because she knew him <laughs> as an alcoholic <laughs> and so she knew we were getting married and she'd she'd given me the uh the video of how Lois formed Elanon when love's not enough and so she'd kind of sown in the seed and at the time he wasn't drinking so I was like oh thank you very much that was really helpful to watch and Da, 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 da. Anyway, when I was back in New Zealand, I thought I didn't think my our marriage was going to survive because you know I didn't have any desire to come back to to Australia and, and deal with him, <laughs> to be honest. And I thought, wow, it's quite safe for me to go to Alanon over here. No one knows me in New Zealand. Like it's not it's not attached to him, you know. And so yeah, I found the rooms of Alanon in New Zealand and um, went to probably a month's worth of meetings over there, very healthy fellowship over there. So then I came back to Tassie and, you know, and, you know just got into it when I got back here.
2: Okay. So how about you then, Gillian? You came into al through your daughter going to Alateen. So what was your sort of first impression?
3: My first meeting was in a little um, kindergarten room and there was all these little hanging mobiles and kids' paintings. And we sat in a little mini chairs as well. And there were probably quite a lot of people. And I, I think I was in a bit of a daze, but I just sat right at the back of the room and I folded myself into a little ball and I just listened. And for me it was, I don't know, something happened, something miraculous happened because I was listening to these people talking about stuff that we never talked about, like feelings for a start, and also talking about what was going on in the home where it's, you know, from a very early age, I knew that we, we didn't talk about stuff that went on at home and we didn't talk about our parents or anything like that. So to hear people talking on one half of me was like, oh, this is kind of, you know, oh, a little bit uncomfortable. But on the other part, it was like, oh, my God, you know, this is, this, it just felt like the right place I needed to be. And I just kept hearing things that were almost like a, a solution to the problem. Because after all of the stuff that I'd been going to, I'd hear the things that might get me through temporarily. But no one had a story. No one had a, a, a life story. And so my first meeting, there was an older member who's still with us today. who's a beautiful, beautiful person. And she had already been an al for 40 years when I got there. And she would always tell her story. And so there was like that hope. So I had a hope that, oh, my God, maybe my life can change. Maybe there is... It's, it can be different. And so that was my first experience. And I just kept going back week after week and then I added two meetings to that. And, yeah, so that was my, that's how I started.
2: Yeah. So what's life like now for you?
3: Oh, I have a beautiful life just for today. Things get thrown at me and um, I can fall in a heap. But I, knowing that I have al and all the al tools just keeps me in the day and keeps me focused. I do quite a lot of service for Eleanor. I have in the past and still continue to do. And just having a family, I feel like Eleanor really is my family because I, they're always there. No one tells me what to do. No one criticises. No one gossips. No one, we just really love and support each other. And, and no one tells me how to live my life, it tells me that they're there if I need them. And, but no one says you should be doing this or you should be doing that. And I can do this recovery in my own time, that there is no reward at the end or no certificate, that if I want to take, you know, however long to apply some of the principles that we learn in Al-Anon, then I can do it in my own time. So, yeah, I've learned to have a little better life.
2: How about you, Jules? What's what's life like now, you know, with the benefit of Al-Anon?
0: Um, well, tomorrow I actually get divorced. Um, <laughs> <so>. <laughs> I'm not really I'm laughing on the outside but not on the inside it's you know it's very sad that it's come to this so when I was in that meeting in New Zealand um they, it was very well run and they used to read out of the literature and so I was exposed right from the beginning to various types of literature from al and I remember asking one of the ladies could I borrow a book and she said yes actually go to the library we, we have the how al works at the library so I joined the library the next day and I within a week I'd read that blue book, How Alanon works. And I just knew that it was a place for me and I knew that there was hope. And so when I kept coming back to the meetings, I, I just knew that it would wear off on me and that I would find, you know, strength. And I did, you know, six years down the track, I hardly miss it. Well, no, there was about a year that I didn't wasn't able to attend meetings after we'd separated because I had no one to look after my daughter. So Gillian suggested I start a meeting <laughs> so I could attend one during the day. We're a year and a half into that meeting and it's gone from zero people to eight on every week now. It's beautiful, which is big for little old Lonceston. Yeah, I didn't realise that I had choices growing up. You know, how Mum modelled doing life as a wife was you just put up with things, right? So I didn't realise that I had the choice to not put up with unacceptable behaviour. So Alanon modeled that to me. It modelled it shows me that I have I have choices the readings you know are fantastic it's all in there <laughs> and even just that one day at a time you know the slogans I think the slogans has been the biggest strongest thing for me just keep it simple live and let live like just letting my husband go you know I couldn't even let him go to begin with you know it become so obsessed and in, in that control you know how you get for me when I came to al I was ho- trying to hold all the balls in the air and trying to control my whole world and of course coming into Al-Anon and learning that I can't control the uncontrollable you know alcoholism is uncontrollable and unmanageable and so getting that into my head and being able to then over time let that go realizing that I could live life myself start again and um that I had the capacity, and like Gillian said, the family, the Alanon family behind me, to support me, even over this um, six years of me being an Alanon. We separated two or three times, and you know I let him back when he had done a good six months of trying and all that sort of stuff. But you know that's the beautiful thing about Alanon. There's no pass or fail, and no judgment. And yeah, I've I've grown a lot. I didn't know how to put up boundaries, and now I have. Not easy, still not easy on a daily basis. I didn't know about this thing called self-care. Ooh, what's that? Um, so I'm loving learning to have self-care. Um, absolutely loving that. It's very exciting. So, yeah, and, you know, I, I sort of probably thought when I came into Ellinon that I would, that was you know, it wasn't just my last resort but that it would save my marriage. But you can't save something which is unsavable really. And, yeah. Um, yeah it, it's you know like i said it's sad but it's Alanon's taught me that that's okay too i'm allowed to feel my emotions and i'm allowed to own those because you know i wasn't growing up i wasn't allowed to own that sort of stuff when we are like jimmy and express we, you don't talk about that sort of stuff you know it's shameful and the alcoholic taught me that too don't talk about you know don't talk about my stuff don't you dare talk about my stuff <laughs> because he wanted it all kept in the dark and of course That's not how life works, you know. We're free to be able to do what we need to do, to be healthy and whole and happy. I've learned how to laugh again. And it's beautiful. I love hearing my laughter.
2: Okay, thanks. If you'd like to find out more about Alon family groups, uh, you can phone them on 1300 252 666 or you can go online at alanine.org.au. Well, listen, that's about all we've got time for today. So I'd like to thank Julie and Jillian for uh, joining me today and sharing their Alarone Family Groups recovery experience with us. Thank you both. Thank you. Uh, I hope you are able to listen again next week when we'll be talking with Lou and Jane about living with alcoholism, the family disease, with the help of Alarone Family Groups. Uh, thanks for listening. Stay safe. Stay tuned for more Radical Radio on 3CR Community Radio. Australian music needs your help. Music festivals, concerts and local gigs have been cancelled due to coronavirus. Artists, crew and music workers have lost their jobs and don't know when their next gig will happen. We're all facing the sound of silence. But you can help. Visit thesoundofsilence.com.au now.